Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour. As always, it's my honor and pleasure to host these conversations. Today, I'm thrilled to be able to host Juju Chang for our conversation on society, culture, and being a voice for marginalized communities. So this is a name that's probably familiar to all of you as listeners, but I'm going to go ahead and give Juju just a little bit of an introduction. So as you all likely know, Juju Chang is an Emmy Award-winning co-anchor of ABC News Nightline. She also reports regularly for Good Morning America and 2020. Recently, her decades of reporting converged in a way as she hosted two hour long specials about the rise of hate crimes towards Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in 2021. So very important work. She is someone who's been recognized for her in-depth personal narratives that have been set against the backdrop of pressing national and international news from natural disasters to terrorism and racial equity. Just to highlight a few of the stories that she has covered, one was a critical examination of the controversial uh, Remain in Mexico immigration policy. Her award-winning report, Trans and Targeted on Violence Against Transgender Women of Color Across the Country, and also her extensive coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic, the science, the economic fallout, the racial disparities, the impact on hospital ICUs and essential workers. Juju is someone who has profiled numerous newsmakers over the years, too many to list here, but many who are influential in lots of different spheres. And I also want to mention she's a member of uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and a founding member of the board of Korean American Community Foundation. So someone who's also been invested in a lot of different ways. So again, I'm grateful to be able to welcome Juju Chang to the ADR podcast. Thanks for being here. I am so pleased to join you today. Excellent. Wonderful to have you here. And again, so many important things that you have done, which we'll touch on as we go through the episode. But as my listeners know, and one of the things I think my listeners appreciate is just the chance for us to be able to peel back the layers, as it were. So I wanted to start with just a general check-in and see how you're doing at this point in time at the end of April 2022 with everything that we're continuing to navigate. How are you doing at this, this point in time? It's so um, profoundly lovely of you to do that and do a mental health check-in. Um, I'm okay right now. Um, it was rough going through the anniversary of the Atlanta shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to Atlanta and talked to um, victims' families uh, one year later. And, you know, you tend to absorb a lot of the traumatic stories when, mm-hmm. you know, um, you, you're in my line of work and there's something called empathy trauma, right? I've, mm-hmm. I've talked to sex crimes prosecutors who have it. And, and I've gone from, you know, chasing both Boko Haram in mm-hmm. uh, Africa to the Pulse nightclub shooting and trying to just power through and be a good journalist and don't, you know, just compact, 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 and then bursting into tears, you mm-hmm. know, at, at the drugstore. Um, right now I'm okay. I've done a lot of, you know, everything from therapy to giggling with my girlfriends to meditation, but I will say that um, some of my African-American colleagues did mental health check-ins with me when mm-hmm. at the height of the AAPI mm-hmm. um, th- uh, hate. And I was, it was a little bit unexpected. So I literally started tearing up and, and what, everything that I'd held back kind of poured out in 30 seconds. And then immediately I felt guilty because mm-hmm. for these same African-American colleagues, 
I didn't do a mental health check-in, you know, to say, I know that this hurts to watch members of your community. I know that this hurts to have to explain, you know, I know. And, and just that simple mm-hmm. check-in meant so much to me. I just assumed that my colleagues knew how I felt about their struggle and the pain, their pain, but I had never expressed it before. So I'm not only grateful to you, but I would encourage all of us mm. to to do check-ins with our, our friends and colleagues and loved ones. Yeah, so important and so well said. And I'm just impressed, thankful for your level of candor and impressed at the process that you even went through of letting all those emotions out, but also kind of catching what was happening in the midst of that as well. Um, and something yeah. that I was actually going to tie back into and just thinking about, you know, the emotional toll of the type of the work um, that you do. I mean, it sounds like that in itself may have been a journey in the way that you let things out all in that moment. And I wonder if you've thought back about how you had been processing a lot of the different things that you've been walking through up to that point, and if that was a shift. Yes, I think it has been a shift in um, in that sometimes like as a journalist or mm-hmm. maybe as a community activist or mm-hmm. as a uh, advocate, you feel like you're doing something. Right. And that goes a long way to helping you feel feel overwhelmed Mm -hmm. or helpless in the face of darkness, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I found is that when I was in, you know, Chad Cameroon in Nigeria, following Mm -hmm. the trail of Boko Haram, I was talking to young girls who had literally watched their whole families be slaughtered in Mm -hmm. front of them, who were, you know, kidnapped, um, held as sex slaves, just, you know, but they were talking to me with a flat affect, Mm -hmm. right? And you could just see the trauma all over them. Um, And for some reason, you're as an American, you're kind of an arm's length away from not really understanding what it's like to have your village burned down and to have your livestock slaughtered. You know, it's just a different life. And but I came back to the states, and literally within ten days, was uh, in Orlando outside the Pulse nightclub, mm. and and interviewing a family who had gone there on vacation, and it happened to be an African American family. But they Googled best nightclub in Orlando, and they mm-hmm. ended up at Pulse. Mm. And when I went to the home. I'm I'm seeing the aunties like cooking dinner for the children who are completely traumatized by this, you know, and for some reason I connected to their family mm. more, um, more viscerally, and I just found that the cumulative traumatic stories w- w- was having an impact on me. I could mm-hmm. feel it, mm. and yet I kept holding it back, and you know these these young women were describing watching the gunmen in front of them walk back and forth. And one looked her straight in the eye and she played dead. I mean, I, the, the presence of mind, mm-hmm. I don't even know. And, and that's a trauma that she'll be processing for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there are so many occasions where I talk to people and, and, and uh, hear their stories, but in a similar vein, I was in um, Las Vegas with the Vegas nightclub shooting. And mm-hmm. you'll recall that was the one where there was a shooter on the 32nd yeah. floor and he had, you know, luggage case after luggage case full of ammunition. He was shooting down onto the concert. And I was interviewing a young woman who was in the hospital the next day. And she said, we heard shots run out. I was with my parents. It was just the three of us. And I started running, 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 running until I realized my pants were wet. And I looked down and I thought, that's blood. And she'd been shot and ran a quarter of a mile with a bullet Mm. lodged in her hip. And she said, but immediately out of nowhere, I collapsed. And a complete stranger, an off-duty firefighter, came and started shielding me from the bullets and administering first aid. And then somebody else came over with a makeshift gurney, one of those like concert gates. And the next day when I interviewed the hospital workers, they were like, there were so many people, volunteers, mm. dragging victims to the hospital. And in that hospital room, the woman with the bullet lodged still in her hip said to me, you know what I saw? I saw one bad man mm. in the tower and hundreds of heroes here on the ground. And she was like, I am so grateful. Wow. And I thought, in the face of all of that darkness, wow. you know, you, you, you see goodness mm-hmm. and you see hope. Um, and so that is what I cling to when yeah. I tell these stories, right, of, of such darkness and depravity. Mm. That's such a helpful perspective, too, as, as, as I imagine, as you're going through all these different components and walking through with people. And it's so helpful how she shared that, because even as you were telling the story, I was thinking, oh, you're seeing the hope in the midst of that, the hope and the humanity in people. But the 
to hear her put that in context of one versus a hundred, I think is so powerful. Totally, totally. And I quote her to this day, it's been years and I was such, such a powerful moment. Mm, yeah, really, really important. And I imagine things like that just keep you going. Um, but to step back even a little bit further and to give our listeners again a peek back, I'm curious if you'd be willing to share just how you even got into this path in the first place. What motivated you to get into reporting, into journalism, into co-anchoring, and to bringing these stories, these important stories to such a larger audience in the way that you have so effectively? Well, two things. My, my joke is that I basically failed freshman calculus. So, um, you know, there are a lot of, I, I've had feedback on this, like, don't, you know, buy into these rumors that, you know, the, these stereotypes that women aren't good in math. I was like, oh no, that's not the stereotype. I'm breaking the stereotype that Asians are good at math. Um, so I feel like, you know, um, You're safe. but yeah, exactly. In that but I, you know, but like my well-meaning immigrant parents wanted mm -hmm. me to be an engineer, right? So that's mm -hmm. what I was going to do at, you know, I was a freshman at Stanford and I took a required class in political science, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. And I ended up getting an A plus in that class at the same time that I got a 27 out of 100 in calculus. And I mm -hmm. thought, huh, I feel like the universe is trying to tell me something. And that combined with the fact that, you know, I think we talk about how representation matters and role mm -hmm. models matter. Mm -hmm. At the time, Connie Chung was a prominent Asian American broadcaster. Mm -hmm. And my mother was the one who said to me, you know, that Asian, that Connie Chung, you could be like her. And it was that moment. Like, wow. that's why role models are so important is because role models give you permission to mm -hmm. dream. And that's what happened. And it, it allowed me for the first time to go against sort of what my family, my culture, everyone around me was saying that I should do. Um, and then thirdly, I think part of the reason why, and I really have only thought about this more recently, mm. but part of the reason why I think I've always been drawn to stories of marginalized communities and, and, and the underdog and, you know, the powerless is that that's the way I grew up. Right. I grew up, you know, an immigrant child from Korea. I was born in Korea, came to the Northern California when I was four and felt very much like an outsider. Like it was Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, cherry orchards and apricot trees and there was no some advanced micro devices. Right. And and I went to school thinking that my family talked funny and mm. my family's food smelled funny. And I was told on the playground a lot that my face looked funny. In fact, mm. I, I tell the story that I used to go to sleep at night with scotch tape on my nose oh, wow. because I wanted to wake up and look like a California girl with like not a flat nose. Um, so I watched my father mm. be treated poorly. Um, and I didn't have words to describe what I was witnessing, right? Mm -hmm. Like today you would call it racism or microaggression or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the time I was a young girl and I just knew that it wasn't right, mm -hmm. right? And I knew that it didn't feel right and I didn't like it. And I still, I think I spent the next 30 years seeing the world through the eyes of that young girl right? Who felt marginalized, who felt mm -hmm. other, who understood what it means to be dismissed or invisible or all those things that happen to marginalized communities. And so, you know, that's part of why I'm drawn mm -hmm. to stories on the border. You mentioned mm -hmm. the story about Remain in Mexico. You know, mm -hmm. I went and did stories about pregnant mothers bringing young children and their unborn babies, you know, to a better place, right? Which is essentially what happened to me, right? Yeah. At the yeah. age of four. So I'm seeing like four-year-old kids and I'm relating to them in a totally different way. Um, it's why I went to Honduras and did a whole series on femicide, why, why mm. Honduras was one of the most dangerous places to be a woman mm. and explored why, um, you know, violence against women is often, you know, sexualized. It's often mm. intimate partner violence. It's often violence that involves rampant guns and lack of accountability. Mm. Um, and those are all things that happen mm. in societies at different levels. Right. And so it was a really, it was, they call it femicide, you know, women would wow. disappear and they, no one would be held accountable. And so it's, you know, there are so many stories where I look back and I realize I'm drawn to them because I'm drawn to telling the stories of the little guy. Mm, that's really, really powerful the way you said that. 
was there a point that you feel like you were able to start to verbalize that? So I'm going to, I'm going to assume that as a four-year-old, probably not, but there may have been <laughs> no. a path along the way. Cause even as you're talking back through it, it seems like you can clearly pick out specific instances and situations that shaped how you look at things, but it was the point where you became more aware of it and that you were I able to verbalize that and translate that into what you were actually doing. I think it took a really long time. I'm a little thick in the head, I guess. I just, it didn't, I wasn't, um, I was more early on interested in um, making my way in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I wasn't about my identity. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's the big change, mm -hmm. frankly, for me. I was part of, you know, the shift in thinking um, after George Floyd's murder. Right. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I took inspiration from my African-American colleagues who mm -hmm. in that moment for the first time, you know, Pierre Thomas, like Steve mm -hmm. Osinsami, some of my closest friends and colleagues at ABC News who I've known for 30 years, who've never talked about their upbringing, their lived experience into mm -hmm. their reporting. Mm -hmm. They started giving the rest of the world insights into what it's like to be a black man driving home from work and being mm -hmm. pulled over. Right. And so I started doing that a bit in my, you know, reporting, especially mm -hmm. with regard, obviously, to AAPI hate, right? Mm -hmm. To talk about, let me give you some perspective, because I mm -hmm. had done that in other areas, right? So, mm -hmm. like, if I was doing a story about parenting or mommy, you know, mommy angst, I would bring my experience yep. as a mom into the story. Like, what it, that would be nothing but a net gain, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I realized that really pretty late in life that that's what my value added was in mm -hmm. a funny way. Right. And so I had founded this Korean American community foundation, which we're about to have our gala. We raised, you know, $2 million last year, wow. like blossomed into this huge undertaking, but it was always something I did off camera outside of work. And now I've brought my understanding and my identity more central. And, mm -hmm. and that has been a shift for me that, I, I don't know, honestly, if I can put pinpoint, you know, when that happened, but it, it, it was a slow burn for mm. sure. Mm. Well, that's really helpful to know and just to see your process and, and journey in that as well. I mean, even to be honest, some conversations I was having today, even in terms of parallels between the African-American community, the AAPI community and the things that people are walking through. But as you mentioned, it seems like the conversation is shifting in the sense that there's more openness to speak about those things across group and to have some aspects of similarity. And this is a, a fresh thought, I'm still formulating, but one thing I've also noticed is there seems to be some commonalities that were there that people are more able to talk about in the ways that others aren't. So I've even had members you know, within academic settings from AAPI communities who have talked about sometimes those outside their community who don't know how to enter into that conversation because they think they're going to say something wrong or they're worried about missteps. Whereas with African-Americans, they don't have that same type of hesitation because there is it's a, a mutual experience and language, so to speak, even though it's not the same experience, but there are so many overlapping components that people seem to be sharing across the communities. Again, this is a new thought, so it's not quite, it's not coming out as clearly as it is in my head, but just something I'm starting to notice over time as well. I don't know if that's been your experience as well, but. Yeah, I, I think it's really important for us to be able to have these um, conversations in and, and not be afraid of offending each other mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that fear just nips the conversation yeah. in the bud before it even happens. So yeah. uh, an example that I often give is um, I interviewed a non-binary actor by the name of Nico Tortorelli, mm -hmm. and I sat down with them and I mm -hmm. said... I'm really sorry if I misgender you, if I use the wrong pronoun, I don't, you know, da, 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 da. and he, they said to me, see, mm -hmm. they said to me, Juju, it's totally fine. I understand that you're trying and that, you know, your intentions are good. It really does matter like where it comes from. If somebody mm -hmm. misgenders me with hate, then that's not okay. But if somebody mm -hmm. misgenders me by accident in conversation, I'm not going to take offense to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that is the the spirit in which these conversations need to happen. We have to have that, hold that grace between mm -hmm you know, the person who's speaking and the person who's listening. And I, yeah. I think, you know, we talked about Jeremy Lin and one of the most, uh, I think, 
classy ways that he discussed um, a, a microaggression or a, a, a slur that happened to him on court, mm-hmm. right? With somebody, so, somebody on court called him the coronavirus or called him China virus or something. And, and afterwards, everybody, you know, the reporters, nosy reporters like me uh, were like at the press conference saying, so who did it? Who did it? Who mm-hmm. was it? And, and he said, you know, I have no interest in shaming or blaming anyone, mm-hmm. but I want to call out the behavior because if I don't, then it's, then it's seen as okay. And I thought that is such a great way of looking at these conversations because, mm-hmm. you know, we can't learn unless we have these conversations Mm -hmm. and we don't, and yet at the same time, we don't want to be just, you know, calling balls and strikes all the time and, and, uh, you know, telling people, you know, that what they said was wrong Mm -hmm. or hurtful or stupid or worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so well said. And even that word grace that came up as you were talking to that individual, I think is huge just to have the grace to be able to make those mistakes. And it seems that there's also a level of trust, there that needs to be there. Trust that the people are coming from the right place of intentionality. And again, just having that place to have to have that learning. Because as you said, if, if the mistakes don't happen, then people won't learn. And perhaps that's, again, my neuroscience piece that's coming out already. But that's just what we learn from those types of things and how that also needs to be applied in, the, in these situations as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. On that note, I also was curious just about, because you, I mean, again, you've done, I keep going back to it, but just so much that you've done to really have and speak for so many marginalized and quote unquote voiceless communities, not that they don't have a voice, but not to the level that they need to. And I'm curious, you know, as you've been doing this over the years, are there specific aspects of your work that have been both the most rewarding and on the other side, the most challenging? So I'll let you start with whichever one of those. Oh, so hard. Um, the most rewarding one, I think, was um, at the Atlanta shooting uh, mm-hmm. more than a year ago, um, because we were the ABC News was the only one only network who did a full primetime hour mm-hmm. um, following that shooting. And I know that that wouldn't have happened mm-hmm. were it not for the years and months of work that I had done, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, pre-interviewing people, doing interviews with activists, having everything sort of locked and loaded mm-hmm. so that we could mm-hmm. air it within 24 hours. I remember flying down there and we had booked, you know, the son of one um, victim and the daughter of another victim. And I was like so angry because I was mm-hmm. like, I, you know, once again, you know, we have to crash this to the air and, and, you know, we don't have time to do it. I, I can't believe we have to do this in 48 hours. And I thought, Actually, it isn't 48 hours. I've been working steadily um, towards telling this particular story for 30 years because, you know, how many mass shootings have I been to and and delicately had to speak to family men or how many stories have I done on human trafficking and sex work and what that really means in a true sense um, and, and, and the geopolitics of it and the, the poverty and the deprivation and the desperation um, surrounding it. And how many of these, you know, stories about AAPI hate have I done? And so all of that felt like it was a, a true culmination. And so that was the story that I was most proud of. And we were able to really get at one of the f- fundamental sort of um, uh, areas that that uh, is dicey, which is the hypersexualization of Asian mm-hmm. women. And, you know, you'll recall there was a county sheriff who came out after speaking to the shooter and saying, well, the shooter says you know, he has a sex addiction and he was trying to get rid of his sex addiction. So he says it wasn't about race. It was about sex, at which point Asian American activists came out um, very uh, united in their um, opposition to that idea. Right. This idea that, you know, the shooter drove 25 plus miles past strip clubs and porn shops and other, you know, sex work and went to three different Asian themed spas and conflated any Asian woman in there um, as a sex worker. And that is racialized mm-hmm. at the very least, mm-hmm. um, a- according to so many of the experts that I spoke to. So it was a galvanizing moment in the um, Asian American community. I interviewed two, as I say, two victims' children. One was a Chinese woman, immigrant, 
And she told the story about her mother who'd come here with nothing from a rural province in China who had worked, you know, after hours to get a massage license, scraped together pennies, worked six days a week, Mm. ate from the rice, you know, the rice maker in the back so she could save even more money so she could open her own spa. Mm -hmm. And she had signs in every room that said no sex, no, you know, hanky panky. And all of her friends said anytime anybody asked for that kind of stuff, they called the police. Mm -hmm. And she was very, very angry, right, about that conflation. Now, the flip side of it is I interviewed a young man whose mother worked in a different spa. And his name is Randall Park. And he said to me, Randy Park, and he said, you know, I, I was told when I when my mom, when I was growing up that my mom worked in a beauty salon. And but when I got older, I understand that I understood that it was shady. That was the the words that he used. And he went and um, confronted his mother. And I asked him what that conversation was like. And he said, you know, um, would you tell your son? if you worked in a, you know, spa like that. And of course he's like about the age of my son. And I literally stopped short and I, you know, I, I, I knew what I would say, but I told him I'm a journal, you know, a journalist. And so I said to him, that's a really good question. And he went on to say, I told my mother, let's not tell my little brother. He said, but I want you to be safe. I don't like that you lied to me. Um, and, and in closing, in the same conversation, this 21 year old young man said to his mother, I will never shame you for the decisions that you made. Cause I know how hard you worked to make sure that me and my brother as a single mom were okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just blown away by him and he had given, uh, um, interviews like this and he went on GoFundMe and he asked for a little funeral expenses help you know like we we live hand to mouth we we, I don't want to lose this you know little apartment that we have maybe you could just help me with some funeral expenses and within 72 hours he raised more than 1.7 million dollars wow and if you go online now and do GoFundMe Randy Park he's closer to three million dollars and I of course was like what in the world is happening and so I scrolled through all of the GoFundMes and it was exactly what I said, this idea that it had this galvanizing impact, mm. right? That so many of the donations, they weren't big dollar donations. Mm. They were like $25, mm. $75, $50. And the, the notes and the expressions were very similar. They were like, we're really sorry for your loss, Randy. We see your pain, Randy. My mother sacrificed like your mother, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Mm. You know, um, on and on and on of really just being seen. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 that struggle, that immigrant struggle and saf- sacrifice was really visible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were really proud to be able to tell that story. And we went back one year later, told, told you know, gave updates on a number of the victims. Um, and and it's it was an incredibly powerful amount of storytelling. Um mm-hmm. So, so that was one that I'm most proud of in terms of the ones that I've found most difficult is, you know, um, I have watched, um, our community, the Asian American community, um, be, um, held up as the quote unquote model minority, which is, as you know, such mythology, Mm -hmm. it's such a, you know, out and out falsehood because, you know, again, I founded the Korean American Community Foundation predicated on the fact that there's an 18% poverty rate for Asian Americans in the tri-state area, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One in every four Korean Americans in Northern New Jersey is uninsured. Mm -hmm. Um, Many are undocumented, many struggle, um, and yet they're invisible, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, these Mm -hmm. are the, these are the Asians that are not the crazy rich Asians that everyone thinks, you know, ends up at Yale, right? Mm -hmm. They're the, they're the, they're the Asians who bring you Chinese food dinner or, you know, polish your nails in the nail salon or give you gas at the gas station or sell Mm -hmm. you liquor in the, you know, you know, or the dry cleaning or whatever. And these are invisible. Um, Their struggle and their pain is often invisible. And I think for me, um, it's been difficult to watch our community. And, you know, it's hard because it's like, oh, it's a good stereotype. Why would you not like that? And it's like, well, not only does it put undue pressure on Mm -hmm. those in the community, you you know, I'm sure you see it among your Asian American students, Mm -hmm. but it also 
for those who don't fit that stereotype is a, it's exactly. a really negative. And then that stereotype is used to pit our community against mm-hmm. other communities of color. Mm-hmm. And so that is another sort of pain point, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for our community. And it's, it's, it's led to so much misunderstanding and, um, you know, at a time when we should be working in solidarity mm-hmm. on mutual, you know, um, you know, we have, we should all band together to fight hate, yeah. period, full stop. Um, white allies, Hispanic allies, African-American allies, we should all be allied together. And, and so to me, it's been painful to to watch some of those, you know, those stories emerge. Mm. Really well said. I mean, so many things that resonate and so much to unpack as well. One thing that I want to actually go back to in the first, you know, the first story that you were sharing about, about, about this being a galvanizing moment. Because again, you know, having had a lot of, I've had Korean American roommates in college, and a lot of um, other Asian American friends, and just thinking about things that have been happening over the years that have not come to the surface, so to speak. I mean, even when you were talking about the tragedy in Atlanta, how your network was the only network to do what you did. And so I'm wondering how, how that has been affecting the Asian American community already up to this point and what you see as a shift. Because even as you talked about, you have been preparing that story for years, not just because of the work you've been doing around anti-Asian hate, but because of the work you've been doing around marginalization and discrimination in general. But again, exactly. it just seems like so much of it has been, as you said, under the surface. And so mm-hmm. are things, how do you see things shifting? Are there things that are moving? There the are, I see, to? yeah. I mean, I see a lot of change in the last two years. Um, mm-hmm. I think I started seeing it, um, you know, in the Black Lives Matter protests, mm-hmm. right? When I, Because, you know, as a journalist, I was out covering those protests, mm-hmm. um, you know, face to, you know, police shield in the middle of the yeah. masked protests. But when I looked around, I had covered many protests in my 30-year career, but these protesters looked more like America. You know, mm. they were parents and children protesting, grandparents, you know, the Black community, obviously, the Latino community. I had never seen so many Asian Americans protesting mm. um, and for Black Lives Matter. And I thought that was such a like a uh, an awakening. Right. And in many ways, tool gathering, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it really, uh, to me, opened people's um, hearts and minds, I think. And then when the AAPI hate stuff started happening, um, I, I really felt like I saw a, a maturation, right? Mm-hmm. So the points of light to me are the young activists who are going to the alders and saying, you know what, ma, dad, grandpa, you're vulnerable. And you can't stick with the cultural norms of keep your head down, don't say anything, don't raise a ruckus, right? You need to go and report this. You mm-hmm. need to go and make your rights matter. And I heard somebody, a young comedian on TikTok, my kids hate it when I <laughs> mention TikTok, but he said, he was a, I think he was a South Asian. And he said, you know, my family called it the Uncle Sam tax, mm-hmm. you know, that we were, re- they were willing to be treated like second-class citizens because of the bounty that this country Mm -hmm. offers. Right. And he said, but my generation, we're not willing to do that. We, we all took, you know, his AP history and political science. And we have the audacity to believe that we deserve equal protection under the law, that we deserve equal rights, that we therefore are Americans. And it was such a powerful, you know, kind of rallying cry for a comedian, uh, really lovely. Um, But I think that's kind of what I'm seeing Mm. in the young generation. I also think that I'm seeing, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League runs the Center for Hate. And he saw a lot of the online hate spiking. Mm -hmm. And he went to the Asian American community and and warned them. And that is how the Asian American Foundation was um, created. And Mm -hmm. it was launched by very um, uh, sort of powerful um, philanthropists, um, including like Joe Sai, Joe Bay, mm-hmm. Joe Sai, who owns mm-hmm. the Nets, Joe Bay, you know, all these Jerry Yang, you know, mm-hmm. like all these very high profile um, people who leveraged their 
considerable power and wealth and mm-hmm. founded the Asian American Foundation to help, you know, again, this was this galvanizing moment that that happened. So I think that, you know, and, and then I see like grassroots community organizers, you mm-hmm. know, people who are in Chinatown who are like young kids who are like, you know, doing stuff. And in Georgia, there was a big get out the vote you know, sort of enrollment. Um, and, and we're told by activists that that was the crucial margin Mm. for the two Senate races in Mm. Georgia. And, um, and so, you know, I've seen Asian American organizations over the years do like, Oh, let's ask for bilingual ballots. Let's look for more ballot access. Let's do this kind of stuff that literally the work of democracy. And Mm -hmm. I think that that has accelerated, um, because of this. So, you know, uh, there are points of light, so to speak. Yeah. That's really encouraging to hear. I mean, just in the way that some of those organizations have come to light and the way that people have been invested in that work as well. And it's so important. And of course, I'm always, again, you know, thinking about the neuroscience and the mental health. I'm always just thinking about just the tax, as it were, of all of these things on the Asian American community. And so I wonder if you'd be willing to share a little bit first about just your perceptions about mental health conversations in AAPI communities and how that intersects in a way with all that's happened around anti-Asian aid, how that can also influence that. And just if things are moving in terms of conversation, we had a little bit of that conversation a couple episodes ago with um, Jeremy Lin as you mentioned, Esther Chu, but just curious to hear your perspective on that as well. Well, I think there are many different directions Mm -hmm. to, you know, turn the telescope. I mean, there's the idea that Asian American young people are often um, suffering higher rates of anxiety and um, stress and depression um, because I think of the sort of pressure of living up to the model minority myth often mm-hmm. when your parents when your parents have sacrificed everything for you that's a lot of pressure you don't want to mm-hmm. screw that up right mm-hmm. and you feel very burdened by that at the same time the asian american community is very i mean i hate to speak broadly cuz we, we know the asian american yeah. community represents dozens of countries yeah. and even more cultures and languages and you know faith traditions and all mm-hmm. of that but but if I were to say culturally Asian Americans, uh, there's a very big stigma uh, uh, about mental surrounding mental health. So there isn't a lot of open discussion. There isn't a lot of you know therapy treatment options. There isn't a lot in that space. And and then thirdly, I would say when you drill down into these attacks, many of them involve a component of a mental health break mm-hmm. on the part of the perpetrators, right? And we've seen that time and time again, whether it's, you know, somebody who walks into a black church and and kills parishioners, whether it's somebody who walks into a Jewish synagogue and kills parishioners, or somebody who walks into three Asian-themed spas and kills Asian Americans and, and bystanders, you see this is this is disordered behavior, right? This is mental illness. And, um, and yet a lot of this is reframed depending on the circumstances, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that ultimately, that is why dog whistles are so dangerous, right? It's not because rational people are going to go out and attack Asian people. It's because, you know, because of the pandemic, it's because irrational people may, Mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of intersection of poverty and uh, homelessness and mental health crises. And, and so the solutions are very complicated and uh, complex and multi-layered and they are not, nothing's quick. There's no Mm -hmm. quick answers. And so people who are like, Oh, let's, you know, the other thing that's tricky is that some of this flies into the face of the defund debate, right? Because there are those who argue, well, we need more policing. We need stronger police presence, police force, right? And then there are others who say, no, this is exactly why we need more mental health 
Um, we need more culturally competent police officers who can speak the different Asian languages and be culturally mm -hmm. competent so that if somebody is victimized, they're not afraid to go to the police because mm -hmm. in the old country, you didn't go to the police, mm -hmm. right? That kind of stuff. How do, you, how do you get a hate crimes charge when the witnesses or the victim don't speak the language mm -hmm. or not well enough to come up, right? So there are so many complexities yeah. that need to be examined. Unfortunately, we don't have a very patient, you know, polit political body. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these very nuanced solutions and complicated solutions are, are hard to get at, to mm -hmm. say the very least. And I think, you know, but I do think that it's, you know, from a mental health perspective, from a neuroscience perspective, so much of what we've endured as mm -hmm. a society during the pandemic is flaring out. Yeah. I'm sure you would agree in so many yeah. different spheres. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you're seeing this giant uptick in gun violence. You're mm -hmm. seeing a giant uptick in violent crime. You're seeing an uptick in self-harm. You're seeing an uptick in all of these um, mental health arenas that, again, are often reframed, you know. And so hate crimes are sadly among them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And there's so many, as you mentioned, so many things that we have to pay attention to on so many different scales. I mean, even thinking, you know, going back to childhood, think about what needs to happen in the schools, because as students are going through everything, as parents are going through all that, as those combine together, all the anxieties and uncertainties that people are navigating simultaneously in certain situations, and you add on top of that, all the things like the stories that you've been covering for years, they're just going to become that much more exacerbated. So I think I think you're exactly right in that component. And yet at the same time, even as you mentioned early on, you still see these aspects and these reasons for hope. Um, so even in the midst of that, it seems that there's still something that keeps you going, one, in talking about these stories, but then in seeing the hope that people are having to move forward as things have been galvanized in a sense. And I'm, I'm just curious, what, you know, what gives you hope on a day-to-day -day basis? Because I'm thinking about being in your shoes and just walking into certain situations, how heavy that must be? And how, how do you enter into that space? And how do you exit out of that space to still have hope for the future going forward? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I, um, I've tried meditation. I'm a lousy meditator. Um, but That's I, good to know. I do, <laughs> thank you. I try, I try, mm -hmm. but, um, I, I, I there, there's a form of loving kindness meditation where you're supposed to, you know, meditate and spread loving kindness, you know, whatever, but you start, by sending loving kindness to yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that we, we beat ourselves up. We're so hard on ourselves. We're so mean to ourselves. I think that is a big part of how I try to, you know, lift myself up. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to, I want to share a story about one victim I interviewed. Her name was Vilma Carey, Filipina American. And they, she was beaten up in front of a midtown high rise. Mm -hmm. And the highlight of her beating was that the um, lobby folks were seen closing the door as this wow. beating was happening. And later the, the, the building said, you know, oh, you only saw a part of the clip. You didn't see all of it. But the bottom line was it created a lot of, you know, um, uh, awareness on her particular attack. And so I, it took us weeks, but we finally convinced her daughter and her to sit down for an interview and they did such powerful stuff. So they had too had done a GoFundMe. They raised couple hundred thousand dollars, which was significant. Mm -hmm. And, and the daughter, um, took that money and created a pop-up, uh, museum with, with, um, stories. Wow. So what happened was during the attack, the attacker, just again, to bring some humanity to the attacker, he was having a mental health break. He was just let out of prison for killing his own mother. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a tremendous amount of, um, trauma there and he, beat up this random woman and said, you Asian B word, you know, you don't belong here. Mm. And so the daughter took these stories of belonging from the AAPI community and created exhibits using these words and, and entitled it AAPI belong. Mm. And so, and so then I'm sitting down with Vilma and her daughter and Vilma says, I said, so did you ever make it to St. Patrick's Cathedral? Because I heard that was where you were headed that day. And she said, yes, I did. I went for my 60th birthday. I said, what did you pray for? And she just had this big smile on her face. And she said, "I prayers of gratitude. She mm -hmm. said, I, we had so much 
loving pouring outpouring of food people were sending food and gifts and notes of encouragement and and money in the GoFundMe and I couldn't believe like how much people showed their compassion to me Mm -hmm. and then she looked at her daughter and she looked at me and she said and then I prayed for my attacker and literally the camera on me at the moment was like this and I said wow why did you do that and she said because whatever was going on in his mind, I wanted to give him grace. Mm. That was literally the words that she used. And I sat there for a second and I said to her, you know, again, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've talked to a lot of people about a lot of things. And I said, but I know enough, whether you look at it from the neuroscience perspective or from the spiritual perspective Mm -hmm. or from the psychological you know uh philosophical perspective that like that act Mm -hmm. of forgiving someone does as much if Mm -hmm. not more to Mm -hmm. empower the person who's doing the forgiving than it does bestow on the person who's being forgiven Mm -hmm. and so in that moment i said to her you know what's really crazy vilma is that you're literally fighting hate Mm -hmm. with love yeah. And and it was just such a powerful moment for mm-hmm. me. And I thought it was so obviously so genuine from her sort of mm-hmm. Catholic, you know, perspective. And mm-hmm. um, and so that's the kind of stuff that that gives me hope that like makes me think that we can turn this, you know, a hateful act into a piece of art, mm-hmm. you know, AAP I belong to turn victimization into something more powerful mm-hmm. and meaningful. And then to take this incident and and surround it with meaning. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so beautiful. So well said. Crazy, right? Yeah. I know. She was so powerful. Yeah. And you also you took the words out of my mouth in terms of that holistic approach to things as well. Cause I mean that's so much of what we talk about on this podcast, thinking about all those different perspectives. Whether, like you said, neuroscience, the spiritual component, the psychological component, and how all these things intersect. And so I think that's just a beautiful encapsulation of all that. And it's so important. I mean, I'm trying not to pull in all the neuroscience, but what that does, all those components, what those do to our brains and how that helps us to come up with different coping strategies and to move through. Um, Even in our last conversation, we had a conversation with a psychiatrist who also is a man of faith and talked about all the evidence for the spiritual practices when they are tied together with different psychological interventions and how powerful that can be. And it seems like even that's, even that's not your profession, how you've seen that at work in so many different ways. I that's really, really powerful and really encouraging to hear about as well. The one piece I was also going to ask about as we wrap up is just your, I know this it may feel a little bit um, like I'm pulling it back in, but just thinking about your faith walk as well as you are someone who grew up in a Korean American household, but then also converted to Judaism at one point. And so as you know, as we've brought that part into the conversation, curious how that journey came about and how that has also impacted your outlook on all the work that you do. You know, I was the reluctant Jew. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually never used that phrase, but I I think it's true. Mm. You know, I uh, married a nice Jewish guy uh, named Neil Shapiro. And uh, I told him when we were dating and after we got married um, that I was never going to convert. So like Mm -hmm. end of topic, move (laughs) on. I was raised um, as, you know, I felt like I was a very proud secular humanist and I was, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of a situational ethicist, but whatever. (laughs) Um, I, um, but after you know, like a dozen years together after having some kids, um, we, or one kid at the time, we ended up having three boys, but at the time Mm -hmm. one, I, I I realized I really, um, uh, drew a lot of, um, I don't know, energy, um, from uh, the rituals, from the, philosophy from the thinking from the thoughtfulness of Judaism and so one day I literally said to my husband over breakfast like I think I'm going to convert and he literally did one of these like what you know (laughs) and um and what was great is we spent a year going to like introduction to Judaism classes together Mm -hmm. and um and we had talked, we talked about things that we'd never talked about in the dozen mm-hmm. years we've been together. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that was what was so enriching. And in a, in an interesting way, it changed his view of his own Judaism because mm-hmm. the rabbi went from the guy up on the bima 
to the guy sitting next to us chatting about the Yankees, right? Mm-hmm. And so that changed his perspective too. And and for me, we've you know been part of the lay leadership in the congregation. Our kids are very identify very strongly as both Jews and Korean Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the joke in our house is that they're fifty percent Korean and one hundred percent Jewish. Um, <laughs> and and uh, and so it's been an incredible source of um, strength and. Mm-hmm. Um, and family and love, mm. you know, like we they just last week, I, I hosted two seders, you know, mm. and I, I make a pretty good latka and you're <laughs> welcome to come next time. And, you know, um, my matzo ball soup, even though the matzo balls are from a box are still pretty good. That still works. That still um, works. Yeah, it still works. It's really <laughs> I, I, I cut some corners here and there, but it's, um, it's really part of our family tradition. But mm-hmm. I also make, you know, dumplings from scratch and rice cake soup for, you know, New Year's day. And, and so I feel like my faith is something that I, mm-hmm. um, literally was, it literally was an act of faith, mm-hmm. uh, to decide that I wanted to be, uh, be a Jew mm-hmm. and, 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 and live as one, right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You know, has that shaped your perspective in your work after that conversion? I think so. Absolutely. Anything? I mean, you know, it, it it kind of dovetails because, you know, at the Seder every year, we talk about um, treating stra- strangers, uh, you know, remembering to, to be kind to strangers because you were one stranger in a strange mm-hmm. land. To understand that oppression everywhere is anywhere is, is uh, something that Jews stand up against right and it's so interesting the interweaving like right now i told you the story about the adl and the aapi mm-hmm. community and i talk often about how frederick Douglass mm-hmm. spoke out against the chinese exclusion act mm-hmm. at the you know back at the time in the 1880s and you know how the jews worked in the civil rights you know uh sphere and in that in that historical, mm-hmm. you know, brotherhood, really, yeah. and and that is something that I wish was a better understood. Yeah, you know, um, than the things that I see right now, especially online, where um, hate gets clicks, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of anti this, anti that. You know, you're you know stepping out. You're this, and there's this like you know, don't compare your pain to my pain. Like, there's a lot of animosity mm-hmm. when there's really a lot of shared history and shared um, shared goals, really. Mm-hmm. You know, and so so yes, that's been a large part of my faith journey, and it's informed you know all of it in in different ways. Yeah. Very encouraging to hear, and there's great perspective as well. I mean, both your journey and the story that you shared of the individual, just that that aspect of grace and forgiveness is yeah, I know, tremendous, I know. Tremendous. Well, thank you so much. We've covered a lot of different topics. I really enjoyed just having this free-flowing conversation and just, again, all the work that you've done to bring so many important stories to life and to larger audiences, and hopefully to help us move forward as a society to a better place as well. Definitely appreciate you taking the time to be here to share a little bit about your journey and about the path that you've placed and the ways that you're speaking up on behalf of so many. Thank you so much for taking time to be here on the Addy Hour. Thank you, Dr. Addy. And I am a huge fan of your work and want to dig into it. So maybe someday I could interview you. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, inc- I appreciate the, uh, the investment and I may take you up on that offer as well. I think our listeners would definitely enjoy that. I know they would. Excellent. Thanks so much. All right. Bye.